views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. This stuff is terrible. It's the paper, boss. We don't stand a chance. The government takes all the good stuff. But, boss, if this stuff is no good, what am I going to do? Syndicate expects me to go, go to the coast tomorrow and start pushing it out there. Don't worry. You can still go to the coast tomorrow. Ziggy's on his way over here. With 50 grand, I had stashed in the apartment. It's made on the old paper. You won't have no trouble pushing it. That must be Ziggy. Get the door. Well, where's the stuff? Now, look, boss. Don't get sore. I left it on a Madison Avenue bus. What? Anyway, boss, what are you getting sore about? It ain't like it's real money. It's as good as real money. It's made on the old stuff. We can't get no more. We got to get that suitcase back. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 4th, 2011. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Robert Vaughn is unable to join us for today's broadcast, but fear not, he will return. And that leaves me sitting alone in the studio. Welcome today, where, as always, 519-661-3600 is the number you can call to talk to us about today's subjects, which will include, near the end of the show, gay pride versus heterosexual shame. No sex show in London? Is that is that the deal, or what was the problem behind that? A little look behind that, the scenes of that issue. The larger issue I want to tackle today, though, is crisis, which is what we saw in the United States last week and continue to see around the world. Debt crisis, economic crisis, political crisis. Is that really the nature of the crisis? I don't think so. I'll take a look at that. But, um, you know, it's almost surrealistic in a way for me to think that doing the show solo was the way I did it for two, two and a half years. And so I got to get back into this monologue form of presentation. And I do have to say, so I'll do it in his absence, uh, that reaction to Robert Vaughn's addition to the show has really been incredibly supportive and positive. And let's face it, it's usually, uh, you know, though not always, a little more engaging to have a dialogue when possible. So I guess being here alone lets me go on a rant, but I've got to be careful of those type of things. <laughs> it's another thing you need a monologue approach for. I would, however... I'd like to take a moment before we begin with our show's agenda today to thank all of those of you who've become loyal and, in some admitted cases, addicted regular listeners to Just Right, which airs, of course, every Thursday at this time on CHRW-FM, located at the campus of the University of Western Ontario. And I would also like to welcome those of you who are relatively new listeners to the show. I know you're there because I just went through our recent online archive stats of our website at www.justrightmedia.org, where, by the way, you can go to get every past broadcast of the show. And the stats have been soaring. And in terms of unique visitors, with we had over 2,000 new unique visitors checking out our show over the last three or four weeks alone. And I suppose the difference between discovering the show now as opposed to the earliest years is that new listeners have this instant access to well over 200 past weekly broadcasts, which is apparently what a lot of you are doing. Our very first broadcast, show number one, which was broadcast back in 2000, continues to be one of our top-loaded, sh- you know, top-downloaded shows. Does that sound right? Yeah, top-downloaded. And... Uh, 
at that point, the show had not yet developed its identity or signature, which now distinguishes it from other shows and broadcasts in the spoken word category. And I'm certain there are many of you who would see the show in a different light or have a different perspective on what the show means to you. But for me, if, especially if you're new to the show or you're just discovering it, what Just Right is, is, I guess, a roadmap. It's, it's, it's a philosophical road. A road that we like to say leads in the right direction, the right direction being towards individual freedom and the creation of a consensual society. That's basically the theme of the show. Now, of course, in such a society, the initiation of the use of force or coercion between individuals is prohibited by law, moral code, and by social convention. But you cannot start on this premise, and that's part of the lesson we have to learn. Non-coercion is not an axiom. It's not a starting point. It's a consequence of a philosophical hierarchy. In metaphysics, it means reality, not the supernatural or the mystic. In epistemology, it means reason, not whim, faith, or consensus. In ethics, it means consent, not coercion or force. In politics, it means freedom, not statism. In economics, it means capitalism, not socialism, communism, fascism, or any other ism or schism. And that's basically the freedom formula. It was not and could not be invented. Like any mathematical or chemical formula, it has to be discovered and understood. And that's sort of the mission statement of Just Right, if I can use that term to describe the bigger picture. Now, regrettably, government debt is a symptom of a philosophy that is very different from the formula I just described. And with that in mind, I thought we'd start the show off with a brief explanation and expansion of what last week's you saw it, you heard it all in the States, artificial crisis, as it's called by some now, over increasing the legal government debt ceiling in the U.S. Like, what was that all about? Now, as our opening audio excerpt from, believe it or not, that was from the Honeymooners, made clear, counterfeit money is as good as the real stuff. And poor Ralph gets to put that theory to the test, believing, like the government, that he's doing good, not harm, in the process of spending that counterfeit money. But we'll hear more about that later on. What I did was I reviewed a bunch of uh, newspaper clippings and overviews of how they were looking at this whole situation south of the border. And, of course, it's not just the situation south of the border. We have to keep that in mind. And here's some of what they were saying. i just uh, recap some of them very quickly. One of the headlines reads, London Free Press, July 30th. Default deadline fails to move politicians, where we learned that the Republican-controlled House approved a deficit-cutting plan, and the Democrat-led Senate quickly rejected it which moves, uh, um, moves that underscore the ideological differences but also open the way to start negotiating a deal, it says in, on, in July 30th. The back-to-back -back votes broke weeks of political inertia in efforts to lift the $14.3 trillion U.S. dollar debt limit by Tuesday, which was last Tuesday now, and of course they did go ahead and do that. Lauren Gunter in his July 27th National Post commentary, taking an artificial crisis too far says that the crisis was, in fact, artificial, that was in the headline, but he explains, quote, the U.S. debt crisis is not real in the sense that the Greek debt crisis is. Greece has reached its real debt ceiling, the point at which neither citizens nor investors are willing to give the country any more cash. According to the July 16 issue of The Economist magazine, and this again is Lauren Gunter quoting The Economist, general government debt or net debt in the U.S. is equal to 74.8% of GDP. In Greece, it's 124.8%. In Japan, it's 
In Canada, it's just 33.7%. Hmm, interesting. Gunter concludes his commentary by advocating a constitutional amendment making federal government deficits illegal. Don't know if I'd go quite that far, but you certainly don't want to run a debt for too long. Now, right above Gunter's essay on the same page of the National Post, executive director of the Weekly Standard, Fred Barnes, this is actually a Wall Street Journal feature, contrasts Canada then, America now by comparing Canada's 1993 debt crisis with that of America's 2011 debt crisis. And he writes, quote, What's most remarkable about the Canadian turnaround is is that it was led by liberals, whereas in America, led by President Barack Obama, liberals have held back, seeking to protect domestic programs, including entitlements, from even small cuts. It's increased spending that, that is largely responsible for deficits exceeding $1 trillion for three consecutive years. The public in the 2010 election and in poll after poll is insisting on spending cuts, end quote. Now, of course, what the article does not say is how successive conservative governments, both in Canada and the U.S., have been responsible for some of the most outrageous spending increases. However, Kevin Williamson of the National Review and who wrote uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Socialism. If you remember that, I reviewed that a few few weeks ago on the show. Very good book, and I recommend it. And he writes in the July 20th National Post under the heading, Lessons from the Great White Socialist North. And he writes that, quote, Canada is basically a low-ambition Sweden with a miniature France growing out of its underbelly. So why are Canadians doing so much better than us? There's, there's a scene for you. A description, a low-ambition Sweden. I wonder how many Americans look at us that way. Our guys, and he means the Americans, our crazy right-wing free enterprise limited government bootstrapped Republican guys don't give us surpluses. They give us deficits. Well, surprise, surprise. And there's where the U.S.-Canada thing gets a little counterintuitive, he says. We're basically the same on the spending front. Both Forbes Global Misery Index and the Heritage Foundation's Economic Freedom Index put the United States and Canada within a couple of points of each other when it comes to spending. And this is where he writes something very interesting. Canada has honest government, more honest than ours, Heritage finds, and transparent institutions that work. As welfare states go, Canada's is pretty well run. Canada's success is part virtue, part vice, he writes. The virtue is the old-fashioned Anglo-Protestant stuff. Thrift, honesty, sobriety, savings, husbandry, etc. The vice is the old-fashioned European stuff. Freeloading off of the United States. And he refers there and gives a lot of examples about the military and the healthcare system. Uh, Most innovations are made south of the border. Not exactly what I would call success, but still an interesting comparison between Canada and the United States. It's also interesting, too, that um, in comparing their governments, so you, you recall a few weeks ago Robert and I compared uh, the Republic of the United States with the constitutional monarchy of Canada. And increasingly we keep finding we like the constitutional, constitutional monarchy set up better. And it's interesting, John Papel of, uh, now what's it, this is also out of the National Post, and... Um, He's written a, a book called Against Reform with a chapter on the Senate. And he, he notes, interestingly, that in the United States there's no leader of the opposition. What's going on in Washington is a multi-sided game of chicken in which everyone's trying to avoid responsibility for either the spending cuts or the tax hikes that will have to come. 
Parliamentary government, on the, other hand, on the other hand, joins power and responsibility. In the U.S., power is dispersed and responsibility is avoided. Now, there's an interesting point of view. That's one I've been giving a lot more weight to as well. And, of course, we do want to pay attention to uh, the concept of a space without power, as it was described in, um, on our show a few weeks ago when we looked at the history of the United States. But speaking of history, it was less than a year ago that our news pages were filled with the last American economic crisis. And it was in September of last year that the following interview that you're about to hear was broadcast on BBC News. Now, you've got to appreciate both the irony and, I guess, a little bit of the hypocrisy of listening to a Chinese economist actually paint a true picture of the situation and be opposed to protectionism. You know, he says there's no winner in a trade war, and that's true. He correctly observes, I think, meaning a war against trade. You know, when they say trade war, they don't mean competition. They mean trade blockaded by tariffs and prohibitions by governments. And he advocates a diversification of trade for China, interestingly enough, to protect it from protectionism. Let's listen in, and we'll be back after this. First, China overtook Japan as the world's second biggest economy in the last quarter and remains on course to surpass the U.S. within a generation. So how does this shift in global economics look set to play out? The BBC's Hard Talk program has been speaking to a distinguished Chinese economist and former vice chairman of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, Cheng Siwei. Presenter Stephen Sacker asked him if he agreed with sentiments that the world, on the back of China's growth, was now heading toward a trade war. That's not our fault. Actually, if you talk, uh, for example, for the tires, uh, although they, they made some uh, protection, uh, some move, but the steel, as you know, the, the tire price goes up, but they still cannot compete with our product. So that's the, that's the problem, you know. They cannot just use the protectionism to limit China's export to the United States. Well, you say they cannot, but they with cannot. all due respect, frankly, it's nothing to do with you, whether they do or they don't. That's an internal United States question, whether they choose to raise tariffs, begin the protectionist movement. You have to pay heed to the arguments and the politics in the United States. I am again asking you, mm -hmm. do you believe there is a real risk of a trade war developing? Well, in my opinion, there's no winner in the trade war. So we need the consultation instead of a confrontation. But certainly it reminds us we need to diversify our foreign trade, not only with the United States, but also with the European Union, with Japan, with Latin America, with Africa, and with Southeast Asian countries. Just, yeah. a, just a minute ago, you said to me, when I talked about the trade war, mm -hmm. it's not our fault. There yes. does seem to be an overriding attitude in China that the mess that the American economy is in right now mm -hmm. is entirely America's fault. I'll just quote to you something you said yes. last year. You said, mm -hmm. The Chinese save today's spending for tomorrow. Yes. The Americans spend tomorrow's savings for today. today. Yes. Seems to me there's an implication there that China is not prepared to help America out during this difficult <laughs> economic time. America's got to deal with its own issues, its own problems. Yes, because they spend too much. They have borrowed too, too much money and uh, their leverage ratio is too high. 
that caused the financial crisis. Strong sentiments there from Cheng Siwei, an economist and former vice chairman of China's Standing Committee of the National People's Congress. Let's move right along now to the mod mod world of money. We're living in the age of the credit card, the buy now, pay later plan. Cash is almost obsolete. Let's show you what we mean. Next. Can I help you, sir? Oh, yes, thank you. I'd like a round trip ticket to Chicago, please. All right, sir. You'll be leaving Los Angeles at 12.05 on flight 431. And uh, that will be $237.40, including tax. May I see your credit card, please, sir? Uh, I don't have a credit card. Well, then we'd be glad to accept your personal check, sir. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you understand. I want to pay cash, thank you. Well, what are you, some kind of nut? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to pay. Look, sir, there are other customers waiting, please. Uh, what is this? Look, this is cash. I just want to buy an airline ticket. Sir, this is highly irregular. I mean, don't you have some sort of identification? What do you mean, identification? I just want a ticket. I want to pay for it with good old American cash. Well, I will have to call my supervisor. <laughs> hello, hello, Mr. Thompson. I'm sorry to bother you, but there's a gentleman here who insists on paying cash for his ticket. And what? Really? Oh, well, I didn't know that. I, I see. Thank you. Well, I want to apologize. It's just that this is so irregular, but we would be very pleased to accept your cash. Uh, that would be $237.40. Oh, sir, one more thing. What's that? May I please see your cash card? Yeah, have you got, got a cash card there? <laughs> I think we do nowadays. That was done in the 60s, of course. And uh, interestingly enough, that was one of the periods that the United States was going through a tremendous credit expansion and suffered some uh, serious inflation as well, So, uh, which was to follow, of course. So there's a problem, artificial as it may be to some, that there's too much spending, too much debt, and just increasing the debt seems to be the only solution to the previous debt. And that doesn't seem to work forever and ever. There's got to be an end to that. So I began reviewing some of the solutions people started offering. You know, I looked in the media. The ones I just reviewed were mostly defining the problem. And I noted that most of the solutions were economic and decried any panic talk and even went so far as to deny the problem, at least as an unfixable Armageddon scenario. Though, if you read between their lines, maybe they're not denying this. Tom Velk, associate professor of economics at McGill University, suggests in his July 28 National Post commentary that, quote, deep reform is the only solution, end quote, which he thinks includes no tax increases, a balanced budget, a debt ceiling increase with rational financial conditions being set before more debt is incurred, which is an interesting thing to have when you just ask for a balanced budget. Where is the debt increase coming from if you've got a balanced budget? And then concludes, after these seemingly contradictory recommendations, quote, America has already reneged on its debt obligations. The Obama administration has run up more than U.S. $2 trillion in new debt. At the same time, the Obama Central Bank, 
ostensibly run by the Fed's Bernanke, has created about U.S. $2 trillion worth of new paper money. Now, isn't that interesting? Two, $2 trillion in debt, $2 trillion in paper money. And you wonder why gold is going up. The not-so-secret Federal Reserve plan for post-August 2nd, and that's now, is to pay U.S. debts and obligations with even more paper money. Of course, the final result is inflation and a weak dollar. End quote. But of course, this crisis is artificial, don't you see? I wonder what they mean when they say it's artificial. Maybe what they're saying, we shouldn't panic today, panic tomorrow. When do we panic? When do we ever address these things? The problem's very real. It's not art, not artificial. Terrence Corcoran, on July 28th in the National Post under the headline, Obama set to lose his Armageddon, defines Armageddon as, quote, the last battle between good and evil before the day of judgment and the, and, uh, the scene of a final battle between the forces of good and evil. He then writes, hey, hold the fight between good and evil. This is just politics. Hmm. <laughs> Mr. Obama, is, isn't that what politics is all about? Isn't that what it's about, a fight between good and evil? How do you make a decision between one thing and another? Besides what's right and wrong, right? Mr. Obama created the debt limit crisis in an attempt to foment a political panic that would force Congress, Democrats, and Republicans to adopt a long-range fiscal plan that would raise spending and raise taxes, writes Corcoran. Mr. Obama has hyped a phony default risk by deliberately misrepresenting the impact of hitting the debt ceiling, a ceiling that has been raised more than 70 times in U.S. history. Default is not and was never a possibility. The debt ceiling debate will likely now take a dramatically different course. At issue are fundamental divisions over the role of government, the extent of state involvement in the economy, and the continued expansion of the welfare state. The real battle has yet to come, concludes Corcoran, which I agree with. But hold the fight between good and evil? Are you kidding? You know, I ask with five question marks and five exclamation points. <laughs> Gee. And right under Corcoran's essay is a brief one-paragraph reminder that the United States is not a no-default zone. Written by Richard Salzman, July 22nd, he notes that, quote, the United States first effectively defaulted on its obligations when it issued greenbacks during the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, which caused not only massive bond losses, but a nationwide hyperinflation. The United States defaulted again in 1933 when it abandoned the gold coin standard and reneged on gold clauses in its bond indentures. The U.S. defaulted yet again in 1971 when it severed all last vestiges of the dollar to gold under the Bretton's Woods regime. Bondholders had expected to be repaid in gold convertible dollars, not flimsy fiat paper money. Even absent formal defaults or downgrades from rating firms, the inflation-adjusted total return on U.S. Treasuries from 1965 to 1981 was, get this, a negative 56%, end quote. Really great investment, eh? Wink, wink. This gives new meaning to the saying that it looks good on paper, because <laughs> it is paper. That the debt crisis facing the world today is perceived only as an economic crisis, I think, is at the root of the problem itself, because the crisis is not economic. It's not political. It is moral, it's ethical, and it's the direct predictable consequence of violating a fundamental principle known since the existence of the Ten Commandments, for heaven's sakes, thou shalt not steal. And it's 
you know, some a great irony in the fact here I sit as a supposed atheist attempting to explain to members and citizens of this great Judeo-Christian society that stealing is wrong. It's not right. It's not left. <laughs> you know, it's it's wrong. And why it's wrong. And it's not because God said so. And it's not because, you know, somebody doesn't like it. Stealing, in whatever form it takes, can legitimately and objectively be termed evil. Now, we talked about this subject last week, actually. Because of the net harm that it does whenever the act of stealing takes place. Economically, any arguments, even moral ones, come down to arguments of efficiency. And if stealing is wrong, it is wrong because it is less efficient than the known or assumed alternative under an economic argument. Politically, all arguments boil down to majority rule, mistakenly confused with democracy, but nevertheless devoid of any moral considerations or dimensions, unless one assumes that the individual voters themselves are the moral agents in the democratic process. And one must, <laughs> because they are. It's the morality of the voter, and then the legislator, that is at the root of the world's debt crisis, which is very real and will continue to haunt us for future generations. If you listened to last week's show, you heard Ron Paul describe how America's default process is taking place. It might not be this big crash we're expecting. We might be in the middle of it right now. But as to the very real issue that needs to be discussed that was brought up by Corcoran, and that is the issue of the nature and fundamental purpose of government. What are we using our government for? Well, this next clip you're about to hear actually talks about that. And in this clip, you will be hearing Al Kerouac, publisher of the Halton Herald, Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, and host of CTS's On the Line Viewpoints, which this was aired back on January 26, 2010, on a very fundamental issue raised, and that's uh, Christine Williams, of course, and um, the nature and the, and the function of government. And when we return from the following discussion of messages, um, on the other side of the break, poor, poor Ralph Cramden is getting his weekly lecture from Alice, <laughs> this time for spending a suitcase of counterfeit money he found on his bus, not unlike governments around the world. As Alice explains his situation, Ralph remains in a state of denial about the effect of his actions. We'll be back after all of that. And once again, I'm asking you, what do you want from government? Because you, Paul, you believe in smaller government. But there are those watching that believe in bigger government. And so for those who are saying, well, he may have wanted to dodge the bullet on the economy, he said, well, nothing's really going on now anyway. Well, you know, I think the problem here is that we What could he do? Well, we've forgotten what government is. It's not that I'm in favor of smaller government or larger government. I'm in favor of government. But what we have... What do you call... Okay, duties of government. What are you in favor of? Well, this is it. What, what do you call an organization? Function. Uh, what do you call a bunch mm -hmm. of people... Uh, who you didn't hire, uh, who take money out of your pocket and spend it on, give it to companies, uh, building companies, so that they can build buildings in another country like Haiti, for example, without your permission, without giving you anything in exchange. Uh, or, or take it and spend it on caviar. It doesn't matter what they spend it on. They took it from you without your permission. What do you call that? That's, a, that's an organized criminal gang. That's not a government. What is a government? A government is a thing that protects you from people like that. What Canada needs and what it used mm -hmm. to have is a group of people who use guns to ensure that you are never deprived of your life or your liberty or your property without your consent. And if you wanted to give money to Haiti, if you wanted, that was something you did consensually. Nobody said... So do you believe that government should be giving overseas to charitable causes? No. Absolutely not. Both of you are in no. agreement here? No. no. 
That's right. That's a personal uh, uh, philanthropy is a personal thing. You don't. Uh, we don't expect. Okay. That from do you mind your taxpayer dollars being used for these things? Absolutely. Because I don't personally. I, the two of you mind. I absolutely mind. Yeah. I think okay. it's criminal. Yeah. Okay. Again, what does it mean for someone? What's the difference between a person who has no money, simply going to my house and saying, "Give me all your money, or I'll beat you up." or electing someone who says, give me all your money so I can give it to him or I'll beat you up or throw you in jail. It's the exact same thing. We play this mental game where we think that because we ask the government for it, it's not immoral. Do you believe in any cushion for the poor? I believe that, yes, I believe in charity that comes from persons who give it voluntarily. I think but that's- But not government funded. That's not charity. So if people don't give, that's not charity. You're out, you're out on your luck, you're out on the that's, street. That's, that's plunder, it's not charity, it's stolen money, and it takes any morality out of the question. It turns it, in fact, into an immoral act because you are harming someone, uh, presumably to, to help someone else, but you're harming someone. That's not the rule of government. And when, we, when government assumes that rule, everyone starts to believe, well, I guess government is the one that goes around and harms people. We start thinking of government mm -hmm. as, a, as an organized criminal gang that we can turn to if we're good enough, if we keep electing them, that maybe we'll get our share. When what we really should be saying is, please just prevent people from stealing my money, from hurting me, from, from taking my property, from harming my children. That's your job. I'm paying you to do that. Please just do that and stop with these grand plans where you take my money and spend it on dreams that never pan out. But you do agree that there needs to be some government involvement when it comes to, again, when you look at the jurisdiction, somebody looks after the highways, the hospitals, they all have their various areas, whether it's under federal jurisdiction, provincial, municipal, and money goes toward certain services in society. Well, the police, the yeah, judges. Exactly. The, and so that's, you're fine with that? Absolutely. Okay. Because, because okay. what they're doing is, in, that, in those roles, they're making sure that every exchange of values is consensual. But the poor is different. Okay. Al, I want to hear how you feel about this. Well, I think that the government's role really is to manage, I mean, among, mm -hmm. uh, aside from the administration uh, side of it, manage our economy, uh, manage uh, our hope for tomorrow, and that's what people want. Listen to me, none of this would have happened. But no, Ralph, you never listen to anyone but yourself. Are you finished? Are you finished with all the lectures, Carrie Nation? Are you finished with if you only had it done what I told you so? Are you finished with those? Well, if you're finished with them, let's get something clear. Right now. So what? So what if I got in a little trouble? I was a millionaire for a couple of days. <laughs> That's more than anybody else in this dump can say. For two days I had it and I went with it too. <laughs> it came easy and it went just as fast. And that's the way I'd be if I had it. Easy come, easy go. If anybody found out I had it, they could have my nature to spend. Except I never have anything to spend. <laughs> anyway, so what? I didn't get in any trouble. There was no harm done. I explained to the cops how I got the money, and they let me go. 
So what did I do? What did I do? You think that's all there is to it, Ralph? Yeah. It's all I can see. What about quitting your job, Ralph? Or was that nothing? Forgot about that. Yeah. I suppose you forgot that all this stuff has to go back, too. Every bit of it. All that is, except your suits, Ralph. The tailor can't take those back. He doesn't know any elephants that need a new water. But according to you, Ralph, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Hmm, that's how everyone seems to be reacting to the debt crisis. You know, well, we got through it. Now we're okay for the next while. The markets pop up and everybody's happy again. That was from the Honeymooners in an episode called Funny Money, interestingly enough. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and the number to call is 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on our conversations today. Now, somebody actually beat me to the punch. I had written this point before, and lo and behold, I pick up the National Post, and somebody else used the magic word, moral. And in a heading called um, A Fight Over Statism, the subheading reads, U.S. debt battle is a moral issue that will last a decade. I think it's going to last a lot longer, but it's by Arthur C. Brooks in the July 26th National Post. And he says that budget reformers need to remember three things. He says, first, this is not a political fight between Republicans and Democrats. It is a fight against 50 years of trends toward statism. Second, it is a moral fight, not an economic one. Third, this is not a fight that anyone can win in the 15 months from now to the presidential election. It will take hard work for at least a decade. We need tectonic changes, not minor fiddling. But structural change will only succeed if it is accompanied by a moral argument. An unabashed cultural defense of the free enterprise system that helps Americans remember why they love their country and its exceptional culture. That holds true for Canadians too, by the way. Yet today it is progressives, not free marketeers, who use the language of morality. The irony is that statists have a more materialistic philosophy than free enterprise advocates. Progressive solutions to cultural problems always involve the tools of income redistribution, and then they call it social justice. Free enterprise advocates, on the other hand, speak privately about freedom and opportunity for everyone, including the poor. Sadly, in public, they always seem stuck in the language of economic efficiency. The result is that year after year, we slip further down the redistributionist road, dissatisfied with the growing welfare state, but with no morally satisfying arguments to make a change that entails any personal... He uses the word sacrifice here, but I wouldn't say it that. But he, of course, he says it shouldn't be a sacrifice. If reformers want Americans to embrace real change, every policy proposal must be framed in terms of self-realization. Exactly. Not sacrifice. And fairness and the promise of a better future. Why do we want to lower taxes for entrepreneurs? Because we believe in earned success. Why do we care about economic growth? To make individual opportunity possible, not simply to increase wealth. Why do we need entitlement reform? Because it is wrong to steal from our children. Well, it's wrong to steal from anybody, not just our children. History shows that big moral struggles can be won. 
but only when they are seen as decade-long fights and not just as a way to prevail in the next election. No one deserves our political support today unless he or she is willing to work for as long as it takes to win the moral fight to steer the nation back towards enterprise and self-governance. This fight will not be easy or politically safe, but it will be a happy one to share the values that make us proud. So that's a great essay, and I think it points in the right direction. So a question to ask is, if we know that the debt is an unavoidable obstacle that must be addressed, then why does the debt increase year after year, along with debt ceilings and restrictions, which have no meaning whatever if they can just be routinely increased each and every time they're reached? I mean, what's the point of that? Other than, of course, to engage in a debate, which is hopefully what has happened here. But it must be noted that it has to be a moral and philosophical debate. Otherwise, there is no debate. There's only agreement. It's only agreement over efficiency. And then all you have to do is make efficiency arguments. That's what I hear talking about in this whole power struggle in Ontario. Not political power. I'm talking about electrical power. Talking about the efficiency of windmills versus this and that. When that's got nothing to do with the issue. The issue's not about... It's not even about economic efficiency. Because those things follow. They do not... They're not the leaders of morality. Those are the things that follow when you are behaving moral. So, you know, it's, 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 it's the pragmatist coming out in people. Well, if it works, it must be right. No, not necessarily. It might work for what you want it to do, but it might be hurting a lot of other people in the process. Therefore, it can't be right. And we can thank the twin vices of altruism and pra- pragmatism for getting us into this mess that we're in. You know, thieves are always pragmatic. And pragmatism itself is a stolen concept. It it works on stolen because the pragmatist refuses to acknowledge concepts and ideas, right? Because really, there is no such thing as a pragmatist without an ideology attached behind that pragmatism somewhere. A pragmatist is just somebody who doesn't want to tell you what he believes. Pragmatism purports to be anti-intellectual and very practical. By being anti-intellectual, though, pragmatism cannot be practical. So it's a catch-22. And I always think that Pragmatists are, you know, either, either lying to themselves or they're very foolish, which goes hand in hand with thieving to some degree, and pragmatism has nothing to do with being practical. For example, a pragmatic socialist and a pragmatic capitalist would behave very differently with respect to the same given situation. Both would see their actions as pragmatic, but they'd be very different from each other because their, quote, pragmatic actions are based on their philosophy and can't be based on anything else. But pragmatists can be sincere and actually believe in their illusions. Necessity is their mother of intention. And that, in turn, leaves no limits on government and on what governments can do. And that's why we always end up with tyranny, not freedom. We have to increase the debt limit to avoid problems, said one local market analyst last week, and yet he argued that America can't afford everything it wants, as if this were some kind of moral statement or revelation, which it is not. Affordability is not a moral argument. It's not even an economic argument. It's a political argument based on a moral premise. Is it morally right to take something from someone by force because you know they can afford it? By the way, this is exactly the thinking behind all forms of income tax, which punish productivity and success in the process. Pragmatism is a way of avoiding any moral judgment with respect to a given decision. Necessity, usually disguised as altruism, 
replaces morality as an argument to justify one's actions. And that is a way of avoiding responsibility. And with that in mind, we'll turn to our next clip, which is a really interesting conversation. In the following discussion, it's between the famous Lieutenant Colombo, played by Peter Falk, the late Peter Falk now, sadly, and the known murderer, played by Gene Barry, who used to star also in a show called Burke's Law. But this discussion could be about a murderer, it could be about Norway's mass murder, as we discussed last week, or the people who avoid responsibility and accountability for their actions in government. And for the record, this excerpt is from the very first ever appearance of Columbo, which was not on an episode of Columbo. It was in a movie called Prescription Murder. But uh, listen to this and consider the parallels and implications. When we come back on the other side of the bumper, is it true that the Western Fair is no longer interested in sex? as phrased by the London Free Press, we shall find out. All right. We are talking about a man who commits a crime. Not the garden variety of barroom brawl, but an elaborate intellectual project. What do we know about this man? Obviously, he's not impulsive. He plans, he calculates, he minimizes risks. He's oriented by his mind, not by his emotions. And he's probably well-educated, too. Like maybe a professional man. Like maybe. At any rate, an orderly man with an eye for detail and courage. Courage? Well, certainly. To go through a thing like this, whatever it may be, it takes a strong nervous system. Well, you could be right. But one thing bothers me, Doctor. This man that we're talking about has taken a human life. Now, wouldn't you say that he was insane? Why? Because he committed an immoral act? Morals are conditioned, Lieutenant. They're relative, like everything else is today. Our murderer may be as sane as you and me. Killing may be repugnant to him. But if it's his only solution, he uses it. That's pragmatism, my friend, not insanity. Tell me, Doctor, how do you catch a man like that? You don't. You're probably right. Tonight, baby, so you know, might take me a while to get there. <laughs> oh, what? No boom boom? Uh, hey, I understand. You probably just want to go right to sleep and skip the fun stuff, huh? Yes. Okay. Thank you. No boom boom. Well, there may be no boom-boom at the Western Fair this year. By the way, that was Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn in an outrageous movie called Houseboat. If you want to have a good chuckle of that, if you can take uh, if you can take it, it's pretty outrageous, actually, what they do in that, but it's funny. 
So we just heard an interesting thing that happened at the Western Fair. I don't know how the situation is resolved. I haven't even seen today's paper yet. But I do find it interesting. You know, if gay is the proper term to describe the homosexual and lesbian community, then perhaps sad is the best word to describe the heterosexual community. Given the constant negative receptions given to any event in this town that happens to be oriented primarily to heterosexual couples or singles. Have you ever noticed that? The mayor of this community, quite rightly, and we mentioned this last week, has taken the step to let the gay community know it is part of London's community. But in this strange inversion of sexual exclusion from the community, the heterosexual community is constantly being driven away by restrictions, prohibitions, and moral condemnations of heterosexual interest and activity. Now, am I the only one that sees this pattern? Uh, you know, I've lived in London a long time, and I remember back in the 70s, boy, strip clubs, you could find them on every other corner downtown. And that was when the core was very busy with activity and alive. And they came and went, but they didn't disappear just because, you know, today they're not disappearing just because the market is changing, which it is, mostly thanks to the Internet, but also because they've been grandfathered out of existence by municipal legislation, leaving a core of monopolists in, in control of the local industry. And I just find that a very interesting situation to allow. And so they have no competition, so the businesses that are there kind of almost have to stay there to hang on to their licenses. And, you know, while discrimination against someone because of his or, her gay, his or her, you know, gay sexual orientation has become an offense worthy of a human rights complaint before a human rights commission, I have yet to hear of any significant cases involving a heterosexual victim. Now, I am, however, very aware of the largest award ever given before Ontario's Human Rights Commission for sexual harassment, and it did involve two heterosexuals, strangely enough, both male. Figure that one out. I happen to know this because, <laughs> irony of ironies, the winning lawyer in the case was none other than Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever. And although it was reported in the news, no one seemed to take notice of it. And then now, only two months before a scheduled September 30th appearance in the newly renamed Western Fair District, show organizers were unilaterally informed that their annual Everything to Do with Sex show was no longer, quote, a good fit for the Western Fair's rebranding. Now, here's an organization, the Western Fair, that makes most of its income on vices, <laughs> namely on gambling, on everything from slots to horse racing, and we're now informed that the organization is no longer interested in sex, according to the July 30th London Free Press headline above Joe Belanger's cover coverage of the incident. And it says, Western Fair District no longer interested in sex. There'll be no sex show at the Western Fair District this fall, sparking both anger and relief, writes Belanger. The London ex Exhibition Complex said Friday it won't rent its progress building to organizers of the Everything to Do with Sex show. The show has been held there for the last three years, provoking criticism and debate about the organization's mandate, the appropriateness of such a show, and the impact of pornography on women. Show organizer Mikey... Singer said he's thoroughly disgusted and disappointed by the move. Not to hold the event, just two months before the show was to open on September 30th and after three months of preparations. The announcement was welcomed, but not applauded by Megan Walker, executive director of the London Abuse Women's Centre. It should never have happened in the first place, she said. This show is sponsored by the pornography industry, and we don't believe the West 
believe the Western Fair, which is supposed to be non-profit and providing support for the agricultural industry and entertainment and fun for the whole family, including children, should be involved in it, end quote. Walker said 83% of abused women who seek help from the center reported being sexually assaulted as part of their abuse, while 31% said pornography is part of the sexual violence they suffered. She said women who work in the pornography industry last an average of three months and emerge with post-traumatic stress disorder equal to that of Vietnam War veterans. When there's such a great power imbalance in a relationship, you don't have the opportunity to give consent to choose to be in the porn industry, end quote, she said. And I just can't believe they printed that whole thing. You know, Megan Walker has her dysfunctional views on sexuality and relationships and government are all very well known to Londoners, but what do her views of pornography and gender violence have to do with a sex show aimed at heterosexual couples? Why is the London Free Press devoting more than half the space in an article about a contract breach between two consenting parties, the Western Fair and organizers of the sex show, to Megan Walker? Is the assumption that those who attend such a show are forced to attend the show due to the power imbalance of, in, in a male-female relationship? Uh, this is so absurd and outrageous. It's just, it's just one non-sequitur after another. And now here's the biggest... This is where I... Just my, my back gets up, you know. When somebody I know talks and justifies something on a principle, I know that they don't really... Uh, abide by. And since when is Walker interested in consent? I mean, that's not her standard of value. She's already stated her doctrinaire opposition to pornography. Whether it's consensual or not, she doesn't care. So why would she bring up an argument of consent since it's not relevant? And as a socialist and NDP supporter, consent's not really on the agenda. They, they believe in using force, forcing people to do stuff, forced into a health care system paid for by forced redis redistribution, theft of other people's wealth, an education system paid for by forced funding of all taxpayers, whether they have kids or not. Initiating force against others is a complete non-consideration to socialists of all stripes and of all degrees. People don't even think about it when, they, when, they, when government does it, you see. And the other irony is that socialism has no means of wealth creation and as such must always be delegated to being a social and economic parasite to some degree of capitalism, which is the only known and the only possible system of wealth creation that we do know. Therefore, socialism must be and is coercive in its nature. That's the nature of socialism. It's not the objective of socialism that it can be defined, be, defined by. It's how it actually is in practice. And it's very anti-human and humiliating and, and a denigrating experience. It punishes virtue and rewards vice. That's what socialism does. And so Megan Walker, as far as I'm concerned, has no moral authority, whatever, to speak on the subject of consent. It's offensive to hear that word coming from her lips. When it comes to philosophy, I mean, this is a complete train wreck. It has no principle other than the whims of the person speaking. And I have to say she's consistent in one unavoidable regard. And that's her negative and demeaning view of men consistently, particularly those in a traditional heterosexual relationship, where at the very least, the man and the women can be distinguished from one another, right? And this is the one constant and the one motivator of everything I've ever seen come out of that whole Walker camp of ideology. So 
How does she get that kind of news attention? It's, it's a mystery to me, to be honest with you. Is her agenda being, being shared by others? Um, <laughs> maybe that's why they're printing all these stories about her. But this keep, keeps on going all the time. You know, I was the uh, only caller this past, I think it was Monday, I thought, maybe Tuesday, could have been Friday, actually, into CJBK Radio Andy Utman's show when he had um, sexual organizer Mikey Singer appear as his guest by telephone. And what I heard there was that there were hints at a possible pending lawsuit over the Western Fair's quite sudden refusal to rent premises for the event. So I don't know where that stands today, if that's still going to be the case, or where, what the situation will be with the Western Fair. But, you know, talking about the Western Fair as family entertainment, when a lot of what goes on there is gambling, and, and, and issues like that is just an amazing thing to me. It's another non non sequitur. Sure, kids can go there during the Western Fair, and if it's going to be a community um, district, shouldn't all members of the community be welcome? I, I, it's just a different philosophy entirely. We've gone completely upside down on some things. We've become so inclusive that the people we used to exclude are now included, and the people we used to include are now excluded, as if that somehow makes things better. I don't really think that's the situation. But, uh, you know, whether Megan Walker's role in the Western Fair's decision in the end turns out to be a factor or not, it remains nevertheless a fact that hers is the only opinion to which we get exposed by the media outside of the direct participants in the dispute. And I think that's, uh, that's the real story here. And that'll be continued in a community <laughs> near you. Interesting. We'll see how that one face, you know, works out in the future. That about wraps it up for me today. Just a couple of things to say before I go. I know a number of you have been uh, wondering where I am on Facebook. I, I have a Facebook page, and I haven't been posting there for a while. Just I've been so busy, folks. I'm running. I'm not running, but I'm busy in the provincial election, of course, uh, working with the Freedom Party of Ontario, organizing candidates around the province. We have more than we ever have had in the past, so that's keeping me pretty busy. I am the CFO. We're still, of course, working on the show. So I know a lot of you who are on our Facebook page and even on our Just Right Facebook page and things like that might... The only evidence you have that I'm alive is the fact that the show keeps coming out week after week. But I haven't been doing much posting and I apologize for that. I will be getting back to that in the very near future. But for now, we've got to leave you for this week and we will again return next week when we continue this never-ending journey in the right direction. Until next week, we'll see you then. Take care. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be I took one of those personality tests <laughs> Came back negative <laughs> I like to be romantic with women But there's something about my voice That kind of ruins it <laughs> I don't really know what it is, but I'll be like, you look really beautiful in the moonlight tonight. <laughs> and she'll say, are you going to rape me? <laughs> 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 <laughs>